Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. Uh, it's been two weeks since our last episode uh, as we've gorged on Euro 2020 action. Um, we just love tournament football. We did wax lyrical about it on the, the preview podcast and for good reason really as, as it's delivered without question uh, depending on who your allegiances lie with. But um, thankfully, a few of the players we talked about on that preview pod have also delivered. Um, some teams though haven't, uh, which I'm sure we will get onto uh, and in this little preamble, I'm sure, uh, North Macedonia are out, Russia are out, um, Scotland are out, Turkey are out. Um, aren't you glad that we didn't pick them as dark horses uh, like everybody else? Um, Billy Gilmore, Mason Mount, Ben Chilwell all missed their respective nations' final group games due to a COVID breach. Um, it was, yeah, it's been action packed. It's been filled with a little, lots of drama. Uh, but with, with me once again is the fantastic Lee Scott, who's been. Um, Enjoying is maybe a strong word for, for Scotland's first appearance at a major tournament for 23 years. Uh, and of course, you've been watching on with that analytical eye of yours. Um, it's been dramatic, hasn't it, Lee? I think it's definitely been dramatic. I mean, just, just speaking in isolation about Scotland, I think that of what we've all learnt over the last two weeks is that the build-up and preparation for the match days were actually way more fun than the, the match days themselves. But as you said just before we started recording, Joe, I, I don't think you can argue with the fact that Scotland have played three games and they've conceded two goals that could well be goal of the tournament <laughs> contender. So it's uh, yeah, it's a glorious failure. I feel bad. My kids are old enough now that they were excited for the tournament and watching along and, and they were convinced that Scotland were going to go all the way. Unfortunately, they've had their, their first <laughs> dose of realism as a Scotland supporter and I'm sure there'll be many more to come. Yeah, it's uh, it's that that rite of passage, really, isn't it? And th- <laughs> yeah. those those two goals, Patrick Schick's goal from fifty yards, yeah. uh, and then Luka Modric's outside of the boot cultured finish. I mean, you, you you sometimes you just can't believe you watch them go in and just go, well, what chance have you got? But hey, exactly. it's um it's been overall it's been quite an entertaining tournament so far. I think. I mean, by the the usual standards of of the Euros and, and um, the, the no jeopardy because teams only finishing fourth are guaranteed to go out. I think it's been quite entertaining. Some uh, Equally, some very good goals. Uh, there were quite a few in the, the Switzerland-Turkey game. That might have been match day three, I think it was. Yeah, it was match day three. There were some very good goals in that. Um, Wales have, have dug in really well. Um, Spain have disappointed, which I think has been a surprise for some, but not for, not for others. Um, we've seen Alexander Isak dribbling at defences and terrifying them. Um, we've seen a lot. I mean, what have you made of the tournament so far? Has it sort of lived up to your your expectations? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm on record quite a few times as saying that I'm not generally the biggest fan of international football, but that comes with a massive caveat when it comes to the major tournaments because I absolutely love the tournament football. Um, just that that festival and so many live games on and. And different things happening, different players that people are being exposed to and finding out about. I find all that really interesting. I think that we probably have to talk a little bit about Italy and how impressive mm-hmm. they've been over the, the start of the tournament. They've been by far, I think, the most accomplished and, and most comfortable looking side that I've seen. And some of their, their play and possession, gone are the days of, of slow, boring Italy. It's all about ball progression, breaking lines and moving forward in waves, which is great to see. I've really enjoyed the Dutch, or or rather, I've really enjoyed Frankie de Jong, mm-hmm. um, showing everybody just how much of a ball carrier he is in that midfield. He's just he's just incredible to watch. He's so so fun and so fluid with the way that he picks the ball up, and just seems to drift away from people without seeming to move fast. 
And I've also been a huge fan of Denzel Dumfries trying to win the golden boot from right wing back. <laughs> I think that, that that's been something to see. I've no idea from a tactical perspective why he's popping up in the positions that he is sometimes, but I'm all for it. I mean, let, let's go. If Scotland are out, at least we can support Dumfries. <laughs> I was going to say he'll be the only Scottish representation, and that's a very thin, thin link there um, in the in the knockout stages. But he'll be there uh, as the Netherlands won all three of their group games against Ukraine, North Macedonia, and Austria. And yeah, they, I think they 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 surprised me a little bit because I think going into the tournament, um, you know, everybody was kind of looking at oh, is Frank de Boer necessarily the best coach for the job? But they've played quite attacking, free flowing. Um, football and it's been it's been entertaining and I mean that the the opening stages of that Ukraine game uh, that they played was was really entertaining. But on on Italy though, uh, and and that's probably the best place to start Group A, and they've pro- arguably been the best team so far. They're probably everybody's favourites now, or the vast majority of people's favourites going into the knockouts um, because they have just been so dominant and they've been in control of matches. Um, they've never really looked as though they've been you know. You, you know, really tested yet. Uh, and I think the fact that Roberto Mancini was able to name essentially a B team against Wales uh, and, and never really look too disturbed in that final game. I know Ethan Ampadu was sent off after about 55 minutes, but um, it just shows that the strength and depth that they've gotten, that even though there was a new crop of players in there, uh, that they were still able to play the same way, which probably shouldn't be a surprise to us considering that that was their 30th game in a row where they haven't been beaten. I think it's now nine or 10 games where they've won in succession without conceding a goal. You know, these are these are seriously, seriously good numbers um, and, and seriously good runs. And I think going into the, the knockout games, you kind of have to think, well, unless they do something very, very Italy and kind of combust spontaneously, which I'm not ruling out, but unless they do something like that, I think they've got a very, very strong chance. Um, they obviously have, uh, you know, they've got quite a few um, scouted football alumni uh, and c- quite a few currently scouted football age players. Um, so I think it's probably a good place to start. Lee, I know there's one in particular that you've been you've been you've been casting your eye on, and I think everybody has ever since his 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 two goals against the Swiss, which were fantastic strikes. Well, one was a fantastic strike and one was an excellent move. Um, Manuel Locatelli, he's a he's a regular on this podcast and you know it's not hard to see why. No, it's absolutely not. I think you're absolutely right. I mean we could have talked about Alessandro Bastoni, who's obviously came in in the back line and looked really, really good. We're still waiting for, for Ras Badori from Sassuolo to really come on and, and explode into life in this tournament the way that I think he will Going forward, maybe not this tournament, maybe it's a little bit early, but going forward for Italy, I think he'll be an important player. But before the tournament, when there were suddenly doubts emerging that Verratti would be fit for the start of the tournament, and as it, as it was, those doubts were borne out, he wasn't fit for the first couple of games. And people started to question exactly how Italy would survive without a player who who I thought was going to be one of their key players going to the tournament. And, and Locatelli has just slotted into that role in the midfield with his we already know all about Locatelli I mean he's 23 years old now so this is possibly the last time I'm going to get to talk about him with you in a scouted football podcast because he's going to pass that scouted threshold sooner rather than later I'm not sure exactly when his birthday is but we all know what he gives to Italy he gives them that that calmness on the ball the ability to break lines the ability to quickly switch the point of the attack with those diagonals that he likes to play so much but he's more than that and 
I I first, I mean, I, I think I messaged you this, Joe, and I was quite surprised, but I figured it out myself. But Locatelli was actually the first player that I ever wrote about for Scouted. That was my first mm. introduction into into Scouted, if you like. And when I checked back my emails, the article that I wrote on him for the, the old site was actually in 2016. So he's somebody who I've been watching for quite a while now. Um, this was back when he was still at Milan um, before they inexplicably, in my eyes, let him leave initially on loan to Sassuolo and then permanently. And even then, you could see that he was this player. He was more of a box-to-box presence at that point. So perhaps he's, he's not a regular goal scorer for Sassuolo, but he did get a couple of goals in that season, his breakthrough season at Milan. So maybe then, looking back, it's not that much of a surprise that he managed to get two goals in this tournament, despite not really moving into attacking areas all that often. But He's just such a lovely and fluid player to watch. I think that going forward, away from this tournament, we're going to see a lot of interest building in them. Juventus are, are reportedly extremely interested and they're willing to to allow a few of their younger players to move to Sassuolo along with money as part of any deal, which a club like Sassuolo with their squad building, they would they would probably appreciate that approach, I would think. But it just remains to be seen exactly what will happen because obviously Roberto Di Zerbi, the, the Sassuolo coach for the last few seasons, who was one of the most exciting and interesting coaches in Italian football, he's moved on now to, to move to Ukraine at Shakhtar Donetsk, which I think is a huge loss, not just for Sassuolo, but for, for fans of Italian football because Sassuolo have been one of the most interesting teams in Europe for me over the last 48 months. I think that it's interesting. I, I did a little bit of digging today because I hadn't seen the replacement announced and there has been a replacement in Sassuolo. Alessio Dionisi, who was the coach at Empoli, who took them to promotion, has been promoted, has been appointed now at Sassuolo to take over from from, from De Zerbi. And anyone, I know, Joe, that you were aware of his, his Empoli side and their performances, mm-hmm. anyone who's seen Empoli play last season will know that there will be a lot of similarities between the two. So... Post-tournament, I think that Locatelli is going to be one of those players who drives an awful lot of interest from an awful lot of different places. But you just almost feel as though he needs one more season at Sassuolo. Just stay there for one more year, keep building that club up, and then get your great move at the end of that. Yeah, I mean, Sassuolo, I, I kind of echo that because they have been interesting. You know, they're not a big club whatsoever, uh, and yet they've been, you know, very, very entertaining. I mean, I think it was, was it the season before last, it was weird, the, the, the year that Jeremy Boga kind of broke out finally, the yeah. ex-Chelsea player. Um, obviously, they've had Domenico Berardi throughout, uh, and and it was the it was the one two against the Swiss for Locatelli's first goal that was, uh, you know, made in Sassuolo, where Locatelli's you know, sprays it out. I think it's a half volley. He sprays out to, to the wide areas. Berardi then gets down the side. There's a nice diversionary run from Ciro Immobile uh, in the box and, and Locatelli's there to tap in. And then a fantastic Italian celebration. It was it was a great one to watch. Um, but uh, Giacomo Raspadori, as you also mentioned, he's he's a fellow Sassuolo player. Um, so there's, yeah, there's been a lot of influence on on this Italian team and, and they're a strong squad um, from from that small club. Um, just a little tidbit actually on them, um, on Raspadori. I read an interview with him yesterday uh, about uh, how he's currently studying for, and that the direct translation was motor sciences. However, it uh, he went on to say he has an exam in, in the anatomy. So unless he's talking about the anatomy of a car, which I don't think he is, I think he's studying a sports science degree 
throughout Euro 2020, which is quite <laughs> interesting. So, you know, he's all the players are coming back, they're relaxing and they're getting their massages and stuff and he's getting the books out and uh, he's he's revising. So um, that wasn't just another thing that I thought, you know, it's quite nice. I quite like that, that, you know, he's he's studying to, to get something uh, out of this. And um, I don't think we've seen Raspadori yet. Uh, for for Italy, if he might have come on in the latter stages of the Wales game, but um, yeah, he's uh, he's 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 a whippet. He's absolutely rapid, um, and and he's there on merit as well because he's been he's been very entertaining. Just going on then, so we we had Group A, and there's there's a team in Group B that I think you know is, is going to be everybody's second favorite team. Um, Denmark, obviously, given the the tragic circumstances in which their opening game against Finland. Um, in front of a packed park and stadium was mired. Um, obviously, we're incredibly grateful that, that Christian Eriksen has shown signs that he's on the mend following his, his cardiac arrest. Um, and, you know, w- without him, Denmark are going to face Wales in the round of 16, um, which should be should be a great game, actually, based on especially that final Denmark game, the 4-1 win over Russia, uh, again, in front of a packed stadium. Um, but also Wales, you know, they've, they've they've battled their way out of the group. They've, I mean, that, that 2-0 win against Turkey was was a real sort of, a sliding doors moment for this tournament. I think it was where everybody sort of went, yeah, we're we're in we're in the midst of a Euros here. This is a you know it was a little bit of a shock, but at the same time it was deserved. Um, but yeah, that 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 Denmark team. Um, I've I've kind of I wanted to to say that they were going to be my dark horses, but I think uh, with the, the the tournament tree, the path that they could potentially have now that they are through the groups, um, that's that's one which could be one to look out for. Um, but in terms of a player. Um, I'm very much looking forward to see more of Mikkel Damsgaard. And that's because I just think he's such an effortless, effortless footballer. Um, for anybody who isn't aware, I mean, myself and Stephen Ganavis, we discussed him on the pod uh, well, a couple of what, a couple of months back now in our, our Serie A standout stats episode um, with him uh, being at Sampdoria uh, at the moment. Um, he's 20 years old. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a le- he's listed as a left winger, but I'm sure, Lee, you'll agree with me that he definitely operates in central spaces. He's simply not a, a, a left winger. Um, but he's in terms of sort of his background, you know, he's from uh, Ulinger in the east of Denmark with a population of only around 10,000. Um, played for, for his local club for about eight years before being scouted uh, by FC Nordsjælland, who obviously do fantastic things uh, in Danish football. And that was at the age of 13, 12, 13. Um, and then made his debut for Nordsjælland at, at 17. Uh, interestingly, uh, under Kasper Hjulman, uh, who is the Danish head coach right now. So there's there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of follow on there. Um, but yeah, he's he, he's played predominantly at, at central midfield, centre forward, occasionally off the left at, at Nordsjælland. Um, but typically, you know, he, I mean, under Ranieri at Sampdoria, he's typically played on, on the left-hand side of sort of a, a 4-4-2. But it's not been as a winger. It's definitely been more of a an inside attacking midfielder, an inside forward. Um, but, you know, he's, I mean, he... he He's he's a very very good creator. I think um, he's he's added a, a bit of finishing to his game. Um, you know that kind of switched in his final year in Denmark, um, which I think subsequently earned him his move to Sampdoria. Um, but I think that was a reflection of how you know how high his potential can be because Sampdoria typically scout very well. Um, so for you know for anybody who isn't aware of the work that Sampdoria have done in the transfer market, you know they signed Damsgaard for six million euros. Uh, they also signed um, Milan Skriniar from MSK Zelina for five million. I think that was in 2015, 16. Uh, Lucas Torreira from Pescara for three million. Uh, Patrick Schick from um, Sparta Prague for, for four million euros. 
um, Karol Linetti from Lech Poznan for 3 million. And the best of all, uh, Bruno Fernandes from Udinese for 6 million euros all told. Um, they do scout very well. Um, but in terms of Mikael Damsgaard, Lee, I, I don't know whether, I mean, you, I, I know you'll have seen that, that that final game against against Russia and where he was he was excellent, I think, even from the first few moments where he's kind of just playing one-twos in the corner and knocking it around the Russian players, kind of just the, the last minute sneaking out of pressure. Um, but I don't know what you, I mean, from from what you've seen of him at Nordsjælland, as I know you'll have seen him there, but also at Samp and, and this year with, with Denmark, um, what is it about him that, you know, is do, do you, essentially, do you agree with my sort of assessment that he's probably an exciting one to watch out for in the knockout rounds? Oh, I definitely do. But first, before we get on to Damsgaard, I just think that we should maybe try to limit the, the Patrick Sheik um, name <laughs> It's all still a bit raw, to be honest. <laughs> my, I'm, I'm getting one. flashbacks, yeah. Yeah, too, too many flashbacks. That, that meme of David Marshall trying to get back to his goal, it's just going to haunt me for a long time. <laughs> um, getting back on Damsgaard, I think that, I mean, you, you just talked about the fact that he's worked on his finishing a little bit and people who haven't seen him play apart from at these Euros will be thinking to that goal at Russia and going, what do you mean he's, he's struggling to finish? Because that was quite the goal that he curled in against the Russians. Um, but that's certainly not been a large part of his game. You're absolutely right that he's a creator. Um, even playing for Sampdoria, what's really interesting, first of all, is that he's a 20-year-old 20, 20 who's just moved from Denmark. And yes, they paid a bit of money for him, but he played 2,273 minutes this season for Sampdoria. Now, that's not insignificant when you consider the the tactical and, and technical rigours, if you like, of Serie A and Italian football. It sometimes takes players a little while to settle in and, and find their find their groove. Um He's also had 0.48 goal involvements per 90. Goal involvements are a combination of goals and assists. So just how many times you have either created or scored a goal for your team. And that's nearly one goal in every two games that he has been responsible for, if you like, which, again, is, is really, really good numbers for somebody who's only 20 years old and is playing in that position on the left of a 4-4-2. Um, you're absolutely right that he plays on the left, but that's only in name because he will occupy the half spaces more and more what really caught my eye about Damsgaard when he was still at Norgeland was that how often you watched them play and he was just in a pocket of space and it always seemed effortless he always just seemed to to drift away and create separation from defenders and then the ball would find him and defenders would suddenly be turning because they've lost him and they don't know where he's gone. He's just five yards away collecting a ball. But those five yards give him the cushion to collect the ball and then to play forward and be progressive and, and be creative. You get different kinds of attacking players like Damsgaard. Um, the way that I always think about it, my my reference point for a player like Damsgaard, who always seems to be in space, it's similar to Thomas Müller at Bayern in Germany, but Mesut Ozil, for all the the stick that he used to get and got in the end from Arsenal fans and fans of of English football, who didn't quite, I don't think they quite saw what other people saw in Mesut Ozil, but Ozil had this ability. And when you look at packing stats, packing stats are, are advanced data that, that's from a company called Impact in Germany. I've written an article about it before. If anyone's interested in reading it, then send me a, a message on Twitter or something and I'll, I'll drop you a link. Um, but packing basically gives you points, give every, every player points for the amount of players that get taken out from the opposition through a pass, a forward pass. So 
if I passed the ball to you, Joe, and you were behind two opposition players, I would get given two points. But if I passed the ball sideways to you and you were still in front of the opposition players, I get no points. Parking also give points for the player who receives the ball. So again, if I passed the ball to you and you were behind two opposition players, then you would also get two points for that. Meza Ozil always scored astronomically in terms of parking, and Damsgaard is the same. He always seems to find a way to be there to receive the line-breaking pass, which is key for a team who try to progress the ball. And then you take an Ozil, and people think that he never seems to do much, he never seems to dribble or beat a player. And then the comparison was always at the time with Eden Hazard for Chelsea, a slightly different position, but he would get the ball, and they'd be really busy because he's immediately engaging and dribbling past people, and it looks exciting. Ozil never had to dribble past people because he was always in space when he received the ball, and it's similar to Damsgaard. But for all that, Damsgaard's dribbling per 90 numbers are also quite high, 6.1 dribbles per 90 last season. So he is a player who looks like he's going to become really, really interesting for Sampdoria. And I really don't think it'll be long before bigger clubs in Serie A are sniffing around the likes of Inter, the likes of Juventus will already be fully aware of him. I tell you what, Lee, if you end up picking a pass to me, that's one hell of a ping. <laughs> that is some serious distance and yardage you're getting on that ball. But no, I I know where you're coming from. It was um it it, it was it was actually his pressing that first stood out to me, especially at least in the statistics for Damsgaard. Yeah. Um obviously I didn't have I didn't have that data for his time at Nordsjöland. Um but it was always the fact that when they were out of possession, I'd be like, okay, you know what? He's actually quite busy off the ball as well, which yeah. is usually you know usually a good sign. Um, you know, and it was it wasn't as if it was scattergun, it was actually quite coordinated, and you thought, well, that's a sign of an intelligent player. Um, this season, obviously that it was quite validating to see that backed up in, in the numbers um at, at Samp. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be exactly the same um this over the course of the European Championships when a decent enough sample size has been um has been acquired. But um yeah, he's uh, he's he's a fantastic player. And you know, we we, we talk about packing stats there and, and I'd recommend that art, that article to anybody as uh as you know if, if you'd like to to know more on it. I think I mean Lee's explanation's as clear as you, you're gonna get essentially, but it's um yeah it's a very valuable but complex um sort of metric. Um but it does you know you when you see the when you see the players who are at the top of those those standings, you do see the value in it and why if you see a name which you perhaps don't recognise, it's quite interesting because you think, okay, now I'll look out for that and, and Damsgaard's definitely one of those players. But, you know, going forward, I mean, we've talked about that goal he scored against Russia. I thought it was absolutely excellent. You know, just the way he peels it. It's not even he, he peels into space. He just has an appreciation of where to be. You know, he's in he's in the zone 14. For anybody who isn't aware of zone 14, that's the, like, you know, a segment of the pitch just outside the penalty area, um, which is sort of adjacent to the to the D on the edge of the penalty area. He was just, he just found some space in there, um, which is a lot easier said than done. Um, kind of scanned, scanned, received the ball, took a touch, moved it to one side, set himself really well, and then just floated it in. And he thought, well, first of all, it's a great technique on that, but it's something which he's, he's shown that he can do. He can get, he can strike them well from range. Um, which is, again, in tournament football, as we've seen with players like Luka Modric, that can be extremely valuable. It can turn a game. Um, yeah, he's he's got fantastic technique. Positionally, as we've discussed, very versatile, um, which I think is a strength, but maybe not as a centre forward, which people may see that he's played, but I think his, his efficiency is better in the sort of the, the line behind the centre forward. Um, 
but yeah, I think in terms of you know his his attacking output, shot location seemed quite good. Um, you know, his, his creativity in between those lines, if he's not creating for himself, he's creating for others. Um, he's able to thread those balls through. Um, and we, we forget, he's 20 years old. You know, to be making all of these good decisions in multiple areas of the games, especially in attacking transitions, uh, the combinations that he can play to take players out of the game, you know, knocking it. Um, I was reading, actually, there's a piece on, on Scouted Football uh, by Rahul Aya. Um, I hope I pronounced that right, by the way, Rahul. Um, but he uh, he wrote on on Damsgaard before he got his move to well, before he moved formally to Sampdoria, it had already been signed off. But um, he wrote about the combination play that Damsgaard can get involved in, um, and it was a it was really really interesting because you know he'll he'll do this move where the striker will drop off, Damsgaard will come into the middle, he'll play a sort of a quick one two with the the striker, and he'll run around the blind side of the 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 the, the defender or the midfielder. And essentially, with a quick one-two, he's he's taken one or two players out of the game, and you think that's extremely, extremely valuable in attacking transitions. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he, he's a flighty dancer-like player. Um, and I've in my notes here for some reason when I was watching the Russia game, the Russia Denmark match, I've written, which I have not remembered until right now, is that he's like a startled reindeer. Um, so. <laughs> And that is that, that that can be um that, that that might be where I leave it on Damsgaard because I think that's I don't think I'm gonna top that to be honest. Um, I'm gonna use that in the ports going forward, there's no doubt. <laughs> he's a start he's he's very much like Mikkel Damsgaard, like a startled reindeer. Yeah. Um but yeah, he's um he's one definitely one to, to keep an eye on uh, in for Denmark in the latter stages. Um Lee, you have a, a second pick, uh, another player. Um which group are we are we going to um for, for this one? It's uh, the group that I call the group of death, and it's not Germany, Portugal, and France, but but of course it's it's a group with England and Scotland and Croatia and the Czech Republic because I, I couldn't come on the podcast to talk about players under twenty three and not talk about Billy Gilmore. <laughs> Ninety minutes. It's probably the shortest period of time that anyone has had uh, that's going to be discussed on this podcast. Um, but absolutely, he has to be discussed after the the the. I mean, I, I'm, I'll I'll have lots of people taking the Mickey out of me for saying the nil nil trophy that Scotland won against England and whatnot. Um, you know, leave it out. You know, let let us just have this. You know what? Let's just have Billy Gilmore for for the ninety minutes that he played. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think prior to the squad announcement, there was a lot of talk that Gilmore would make it. Obviously, a lot of talk also, but the fact that Ryan Gold didn't make it, um, not. A decision that I agreed with. I think that Gold showed himself to be, for those that don't know him, Ryan Gold is an attacking midfielder or a wide player who was playing for, I believe it was Firenze in the, the Portuguese top flight this season. He moved initially from Dundee United to Sporting Lisbon, but had a couple of loan spells. There was a, a disagreement with the ownership of Sporting at one point and a little bit of bad blood. And he's he's been this past season one of the most creative and impressive players in the Portuguese top flight, particularly when you take out the the big three of Sporting, Benfica and Porto. Um, Ryan Gold didn't make the squad and that caused analytical Twitter to go into a little bit of a meltdown, <laughs> which I understood, but I also understood that this was a squad that was being picked by Steve Clark and for all that I have a great deal of admiration for the job that Steve Clark has done for Scotland. Obviously, he was our coach who got us back to the tournament after 23 years of not being there. But I don't think that creative attacking players in the final third are, are really his 
his thing, if you like. You saw that Ryan Christie only really played significant minutes in the first match and, and looked promising before being substituted. Um, David Turnbull didn't get a look in and, and he was another player who people thought could affect the game a little bit in that final third. Um, there was a clamour for, for Billy Gilmore though to start and I think that we all saw why in that England game. Um, he just, after the first 10 minutes, I think the first 10 minutes, the atmosphere for all that Billy Gilmore has played huge games for Chelsea, he played the Champions League, he's he's been around the first team for the whole season now. I still think that first 10 minutes against England winded him a little bit. The the size of the occasion, the crowd, the build-up, everything, and you saw he was just taking it all in more than anything else. But after that, he was peerless for me on, on the pitch. And that goes a long way when you think about the players that he was up against. Every time the ball moved into Billy Gilmore, Scotland calmed down. And that is what he gives you. And for a 20-year-old kid still to be able to give you that in the biggest game of his life speaks volumes about his technical, tactical ability, but also his character. Because whenever he received the ball, he always had time. First touch was always to the safe side, even under pressure. He was press resistant, he was twisting and turning, moving away, and he always made the right choices with the with the pass off. Um it was interesting last night because before the match, um ITV split the coverage. So if you're in Scotland you, you got slightly dodgy coverage that, that didn't impress many people. But Gordon Strachan was on the panel for, for those in Scotland. And he talked about the fact that Stuart Armstrong would give you something different for Billy Gilmore because Billy Gilmore would just receive and pass and Armstrong would drive forward with the ball. But what we needed was to have Billy Gilmore there to receive and pass last night. We needed to have a player in the midfield who could match the technique of the Croatians. And we didn't have that. For all that Callum McGregor tried hard to to replicate that role and scored a really good goal, we didn't have that presence in the midfield that made the Croatians sit back and, and worry, if you like, because they, they didn't think that we could break their lines from that central zone without a run from John McGinn, that there wasn't a passer in there that could break the lines and really threaten. And that's what Billy Gilmore would give you. But it's a mark of the impact that he had in the tournament for from a Scotland perspective, from a scouted perspective, from a an, just a casual onlooker's perspective. Billy Gilmore ran the game against a side who whose talent was absolutely levels above on the pitch what Scotland had. I'm I'm not a Scotsman who is in any way not even so much anti-English because I don't think that's as much of a thing as people think it is. But I'm not a Scottish fan who doesn't understand what England have in terms of talent. And for all that they haven't played that well this tournament, you still cannot question the level of talent they have. But Billy Gilmore looked like he could play at that level. And, and that says a lot. I think that this coming season is going to be really, really interesting for Gilmore. I think that for all that Frank Lampard had his naysayers while he was at Chelsea, he did bring through young players and it was Frank Lampard who gave Billy Gilmore his, his first minutes in the first team at Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel's come in and, and Tuchel's kept him around the first team squad. He's picked up minutes here and there, but not to the extent that we might have expected. If you take Damsgaard, for example, that we just talked about, he, like I said, he played over two 2,000 minutes last season. Billy Gilmore only played 842 minutes total for Chelsea last season. There'd been a lot of talk about him going out on loan, but if he does so, he needs to be advised properly, which previously, I think, if we go back 5-10 years, I think that a lot of players went on what I would term bad loans. 
They, they went to clubs who didn't fit their playing style, who didn't necessarily have space at their position, clubs who, who didn't trust young players or didn't have the, the time to help these young players to bed in. I think that now, as football is now, I mean, I certainly, with my work for Total Football Analysis, we, we advise clubs and we advise agents on potential loan destinations for their young players. So clubs, agents, players are getting a lot smarter about what they do with their career and the moves that they make. But I think that Billy Gilmore has to be really careful. He can't move to just any old club. That There's going to be possibly more interest now than there would have been prior to the tournament because of the, the uproar around how well he played. But I think he has to be careful with the club that he chooses and not just to choose a Premier League club without thinking about it to go out on loan. For example, a move to a Brighton would be ideal for Billy Gilmer. I think he'd get minutes at Brighton. I think he'd be a, a good first-team player for them. And I think that he would develop in that system under Graham Potter. Whereas a move to a Newcastle or a move to a Crystal Palace where it's more transitional, the midfield doesn't see as much of the ball, it wouldn't aid his development as much. So... I think that we just need to be careful. Gilmore needs to think about his future a little bit more. Chelsea need to protect what they have and just give him a chance to get first team minutes. If he's not going to be part of the first team picture on a regular basis, and I mean getting those 2,000 minutes next season for Chelsea, I think he really needs to look to go out on loan. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying there, Lee. And, and I think it's, there's, I mean, I, mean I, I take on board what you said, but I think there's no doubt that he will be playing Premier League football next season. Yeah. Again, I just think it does need to be at a club where that's going to be, uh, it's going to facilitate the the you know his development. Um, and obviously, we've seen links in the past few days to to Norwich City, um, which I can see I I can see going one of two ways really because I think there will be an element of Norwich that will be transitional next season. Um, I think the signing of Milo Rashica kind of indicates that they are anticipating that they're going to have to absorb a lot and play very similar to the way that Werder Bremen did on the break with, with Rashica and to, to get the best out of him. But at the same time, Norwich are in the market for somebody who's going to be that that tempo dictator, that, you know, getting their foot on the ball, as you say, taking the touch on the safe side, all of those sorts of things, if they can't retain Oli Skip, um, which who, who had a fantastic year there uh, in the championship and helped them get promoted. Um, but, with Gilmore going back to to the the England game, um, you know he was he was brilliant. Um, you know I think there was there was probably a little bit of an overreaction, but at the same time, you know there's that's only natural because it was a it was a great performance. And then you look at the contrast between that game and the the Croatia game, and you look at I mean Luka Modric had 117 touches, Marcelo Brozovic had 97, Mateo Kovacic had 89. Now. When your three midfielders are having that much dominance over the centre of the pitch, you, you you really are up against it. And I mean, just looking at every single statistic, which, you know, would have been, I mean, maybe not massively different, but in some way would have 100% would have would have been different um, had, had Gilmore been there. You know, that Scotland, Andy Robertson and Kieran Tierney were the players who had the most touches for Scotland, 53 each. Scott McTominay had 46, Callum McGregor had 42. And then it was David Marshall had 37. Um, the entire Scotland team had as many successful dribbles as Marcelo Broz- uh, Mateo Kov- Kovacic in the entire game. You know, this was a game in which the midfield was overrun. And you think, well, oh, well, are you, well, you know, a few England players dribbled past Billy Gilmore in the first game. Yes, but whenever Scotland did get on the ball and it was fed into him, it was almost like a safe haven, as you were saying. And it was, a, you know, the team could then think, right, 
I don't need to, to immediately go to the ball. I don't need to go to the man. I can then think about where I can get into space because I know it's in safe hands. It'll be recycled safely and securely. Whereas I think, um, I think against, against Croatia, it was a, we need to get this ball as quickly up the pitch as possible. Um, and that simply just didn't work and it ended up be, becoming strained and fraught and, you know, lots of bouncy high balls being chucked into to Lyndon Dykes and Shea Adams. And yeah, it was, um, Scotland definitely missed Gilmore. And admittedly, I think Scotland missed Gilmore more than I thought that he'd be missed. So, I mean, that's a reflection of a, you know, a 20-year-old coming into the the Scotland team. And if, if you're looking at this through rose-tinted specs, then you're thinking, well, Gilmore is absolutely going to be integral to the Scottish national team for for the next decade and a bit, based on one nineteen-minute game. You know, provided he can stay fit, provided he gets regular minutes somewhere, um, you know, he's only going to get better. But yeah, I think that was a, a harsh lesson in um, in in how how vital and how how very Scotland it was that after ninety minute a fantastic performance, the only player that really mattered in the final game went and got COVID. But hey. That's just the way it goes sometimes. But um, I, I think I saw somebody tweet that Billy Gilmore getting COVID after that performance was more Scottish than deep fried tablet. And <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know what, what tablet is, I know that I believe you you spent your uni years up in Scotland, Joe. So I'm I'm fairly sure you've had tablets at some point in your life. But it is an incredibly sweet, sugar based, almost baked good if you like and <laughs> it is incredibly bad for you and, and no doubt somebody in Scotland has attempted to deep fry it of course you know what hasn't been but um, yeah he's uh, yeah he's 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 Scotland's unfortunately for for, for for Billy Gilmore but I'm sure he'll be uh, he'll be he'll be appearing at another major tournament um, in in no time at all hopefully fingers crossed please <laughs> Um, moving on then, um, and you know we we talked about how there was a little bit of a COVID issue there, but a team who had a COVID scare at the beginning of the tournament was Spain. Um, Sergio Busquets uh, tested positive, um, and then there was a false positive for, for Diego Llorente, um, but he overcome that. Um, Spain kind of un- underwhelmed. I mean, particularly in those first two games uh, with the, the two draws against Poland and and Sweden, couldn't really find that killer touch couldn't find that killer killer shot because I think there's been a lot of killer passes uh, which have kind of been squandered and, and have been wasted. Uh, and that sort of brings me on to the, the final player, uh, which is Pedri, who is, I mean, we talked about Billy Gilmore being 20 years old and sort of dictating midfield. Pedri's 18. He's, he's younger by two years. Um, and he's already at Barcelona. He's a fantastic number eight. Um, he's, for me, he's hugely, hugely impressed. Um, and I think... If Spain had, you know, if, if they'd converted even half of their guilt edge chances, we'd be talking a lot more about Pedri at this tournament. Um, and just going back to what you were saying about Damsgaard and, and packing stats and whatnot, um, I, I'd really be interested to see Pedri's packing stats for, yeah. uh, for, for this tournament because, I mean, uh, after the first two games, uh, he matched Tony Kroos for final third passes, completed balls into the final third, which... You know, after two match days, to have thirty-six completed passes each into the final third is, you know, to be matching Tony Cross. It's ridiculous um, for an eighteen-year-old. But hey, he did. Uh, and granted, teams were probably sitting off Spain a bit more than the sides Germany were playing. But the next player after that was Jordi Alba on twenty-four. So there was quite a drop-off. So not taking anything away from Pedri, he was he was excellent. Um, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to seeing seeing more of him. Um, Lee, I mean, what is the what's kind of been the overarching 
uh, assessment from you on on Pedri. He is a lovely, lovely player. <laughs> it's a, just as simple as that. It it takes a lot, I think. For I mean, it takes a lot for a player to become part of a national team setup at this age and to have the impact that he's had. But don't forget, he's also done the same thing this season for Barcelona, which is huge. Um, he wasn't a surprise. I think that there are a lot of people who were a little bit unsure of who he was when he appeared. There are still people out there who will believe that he was a, a La Masia graduate and he isn't. Um, he wasn't a surprise last season. His his numbers, um, was it Las Palmas he was with? Mm-hmm. His, yeah. his numbers were extremely, extremely, extremely good. And, and within a couple of first team appearances, Barcelona had already agreed the deal to take him to, to the new camp. But even then, I mean, I thought that he would be on the periphery, periphery of the first team, um, maybe even some B-team matches in there, but his absolute quality shines through. You think about the, the midfielders that Barcelona have had that haven't quite made the breakthrough from La Masia, Carlos Elena, Ricky Puig, fantastic talents, absolutely top-class talents, but Pedri has the ability to become generational, and I think that's the difference. It's it, it reminds me of a, a quote that I saw once from Sir Alex Ferguson when he talked about the integration of young players into a first-team squad, a first-team group, and he said that the first-team recognise quality, and if a player is good enough, it doesn't matter how old they are, the group will accept him. And I think he was talking about, was it Ryan Giggs at the time, when he took Ryan Giggs into the first team at Manchester United? And you see the same thing. The, the, the key test for me is that Messi, Lionel Messi, has in, straight away built up a, an incredible connection with Pedri. And that tells me that Messi rates him and that tells you a lot about the quality that this kid has. But just, just a little aside from a scouting perspective, for any people who are wondering... As a scout, as somebody who who analyzes players, who, who uses data, especially extensively, if you're a club and you're using data, you should be aware of every player under the age of 19 who's making first team debuts across the key markets and key leagues that you're tracking in Europe. And and that's how Barcelona, obviously they were aware of Pedri from before, but that's how a lot of people, that's how I became aware of Pedri because I was tracking to see which players were making debuts in the Spanish second division. Saw Pedri, had a look at him on my scout and I was just blown away by what I saw. I think that he is an incredibly intelligent player and going forward, he's going to be one of the key players for the Spanish national team and Barcelona for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, he was 16 when he was playing for Las Palmas, yeah, um, exactly. which is ridiculous because, you know, you, even at, at that point, you're kind of not at the development checkpoints that you'd, be, you'd need to be at to compete physically in men's football. But, you know, he was doing it because he was just a, a level above technically. And, and then in terms of tactically, he was very, very intelligent from, from a young age. He, I mean, he still is young. Um, but just as, as by way of sort of a background, you know, he's, he's Tenerifian. Um, he, he comes from Tenerife in uh, the Canary Islands. Um, and yeah, he was with Las Palmas, as Lee said, at 16, 17 years old. Uh, and there he predominantly played as a, as a left winger or an attacking midfielder, yep. um, which he doesn't play as much now. He did sort of at the beginning of his time at Barcelona, at the beginning of the 2021 season. Um but he's kind of towards the end of the end of the season. He kind of dropped in to become a bit more of a number eight instead of in that final line. Um, he's he, you know he's 
he's, he's now dictating the first phase of an attack as opposed to the you know enacting the second phase exactly. um you know he's been he's been given license to to pick those passes which break the opposition's midfield line um whenever the center backs don't which I, I simply love because he's kind of a he's a he's a safety net that you know if the likes of Laporte and, and Pau Torres don't don't break the lines then they've got Pedri there to do it for them um, but you know, going into a bit of background on Pedri, I was I was amazed to find that he didn't join Las Palmas until 2018. So yeah. I, the, t- the the last time Spain were in a major tournament, Pedri was still playing for Juventud Laguna, who were a you know a, a local team. Um, you know, this isn't some La Masia, this isn't some La Masia kid who's been groomed in the way of you know the Spanish playing football by elite coaches at, 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 elite, at an elite academy. You know, he's a he's a proper grafter with with sort of immense natural talent. And one of the, my favourite stories about Pedri is that he was rejected by Tenerife, who obviously were you know they're a Segunda División club. Um, uh, they, they produced Iose Perez, who who obviously came over to Newcastle, is now at Leicester City. Um, they rejected him for being small and skinny, uh, only for them then to realise the error of their ways, try and sign him again. To which Pedri allegedly said, "But I'm still skinny and tiny." Uh, according to the club's president, and then he joined Las Palmas instead, uh, and obviously from there he's gone on to sign for Barcelona, which is you know a, a great story I think. But you know he's with at the Euros, sort of going back onto how he's performed with Spain. Um, my observation is that you know he's he's receiving the ball with the midfield and forward line yet to be broken, so he's receiving it as an eight as opposed to a number ten, where some people may prefer him to be. Um, I think. You do lose a bit of how you know, kind of flighty and intelligent he is between lines, but at this point, you know, he's he is creating from deep. You know, we talked about the final third passes. You know, he's very good at building those moves from from deeper areas. Um, some may argue that unlocking him completely, he might need to be played a little bit further forward. But I think while you've got Danny Olmo in the team, who is a very similar player in terms of style, I don't think you necessarily need to um, need to have Pedri further forward. I mean, you know, that may be the reason that Spain have been a bit underwhelming. So maybe I'm incorrect, but, you know, take nothing away. I think he's been, you know, given the circumstances, an 18-year-old in a major tournament, I think he's been brilliant, you know, that he's been given licence um, to, to, to really show what he's, what he's about. That's everything that we were going to, to cover on this week's episode. Um, you know, some standouts from the, the Euro 2020 group stages. And I think with, you know, Locatelli, Billy Gilmore, Pedri, Mikkel Damsgaard, I think they have been sort of the the four under 23 players, especially, you know, they, they've been, I mean, most of them are 20 and under, to be honest. Uh, but they've been, uh, they've been very, very hugely, hugely impressive um, in that, that group stage. Um, very much looking forward to seeing them take take the take the reins in the knockout rounds now as well because that is where everybody sort of remembers the, the you know the memorable games uh, in in major tournaments so uh, similar performances where they kind of have uh, lay their stamp on the games would be uh, would be very much appreciated from a scouted football perspective um lee thank you very much for for coming on again it's been a pleasure to to get your insight and whatnot um Unfortunately, Scotland won't be in the knockout rounds, but I'm sure you'll you'll still be watching on um, with 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 intrigue of, of all these players who are, are going to light up the, the knockouts. Yeah, definitely, and, and I like the way that you rubbed in there saying that we're looking forward to seeing these players in the knockout rounds. Obviously, not Billy Gilmore, yeah. unfortunately. So. Unfortunately, yeah, it's one of, it's one of those it's one of those, but kind of have to come to terms with it. But yeah, 
anyway thank you very much for coming on and thank you very much for tuning in um, if this is your first time listening to the Scout Football Podcast well welcome check us out on YouTube as well there's a back catalogue of pod episodes and pod snippets um, for you on there just about any player any under 23 player that you could think of we've probably discussed at some point um, but yes thank you for tuning in this has been the Scout Football Podcast I've been Joe Donahue. stay safe take care bye for now